0: What we're doing this semester in this large group setting is we're actually going to be going through parts of the book of Acts. And before we do that, when you read the first verse in the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote Acts, says, he's writing to a friend of his named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, in the former book, I wrote about the things Jesus began to do and teach. And so what I wanted to do, and what he's saying is, I wrote another book. We call it the Gospel of Luke. And he's saying, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach there, and what he's doing in Acts, and we're going to talk about this more next week, is he's going to talk about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his church and by his spirit. But in order to get there, I wanted us to just spend one night in Luke. I, I love fantasy books. I realize that means a lot of y'all aren't coming back next week. But... Um, When I I read these long series, like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, so we don't like Lord of the Rings, I'm just running people off. Um, (laughs) When I read the second book or the third book, I like to go back and remember what was in the prior book. That's what we're doing tonight. We're going to turn back into Luke and say, what was Jesus doing and teaching that Luke felt like he needed to continue to talk about? And in order to do that, we're going to look at a parable that probably most of y'all are familiar with, maybe many of you are familiar with, uh, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. And it's in Luke 15, and I'm going to read the first two verses of the chapter. And then, because they tell us about who he's talking to, and that's important to remember whenever you read scripture. And then I'm going to jump ahead to verse 11, where he begins the parable of the prodigal son, Then we'll discuss it. So, read with me. This is the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Skipping down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his life between them. The word there is actually a different word from property. that was earlier in the verse, the word there is actually life. He divided his life between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and left in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. And is alive, he was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories that Jesus told. And even though this is a story we've heard before, uh, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would attend to it, that you would teach us, that you would work change in our hearts. Dear God, we need you to be with us. We need you to work we need you to save us. We need you to teach us. We need you to change us. Be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, um, in a small kind of west Texas town, there was this family, and uh, there's kind of this patriarch of this family, this man. He's a great Christian man, well-respecting community, very successful as a businessman. Loved Jesus. was faithful. He was a leader, not just in the church, but in the community as a Christian. And uh, had several children, and he had a daughter. And his daughter grew up, his oldest daughter grew up, and she went off to college, grew up church, grew up loving Jesus, grew up with this great father who loved her dearly. Uh, went off to college and messed around. And uh, while she was in college, she actually got pregnant, and she came home, she kept, she kept the baby, she chose to have the baby, and she came home. And, of course, when you get pregnant, it's only a secret for so long, Right? before you actually begin to bear physically before the community and the people you live, your sin. So it only stays secret for long. Everyone knows. She had the baby. She stayed home. And eventually, she kind of came around. She came back to faith. Jesus restored her through the church. And she met this wonderful Christian guy several years later. He loved her child. They wanted to get married. He asked her to get married. And they began to plan their wedding. And of course, the rumble in that community was, what kind of wedding does she deserve? Right? Because we're in the South, for those of you in the North. This might not be unfamiliar to you, I don't know. But in the South, when you when you have that kind of public display of impurity and unchastity, you kind of forfeit some rights in your wedding. Um, the white dress is supposed to be a symbol of purity and chastity. Uh, only certain brides are supposed to wear a white dress. Even... The kind of elaborateness and the expense of the reception and the wedding are relegated toward girls uh, who've deserved that by keeping themselves pure. And so, as they planned their wedding, people were wondering because this guy—he was wealthy—and they were wondering, you know, is she going to wear a sundress that's off-white, it's a different color, it's just a pastel? Are they going to do what they're supposed to do, which is have a small ceremony with family and then a dinner afterwards? Uh, he threw the biggest wedding the town's ever had. And he bought her a white dress. And they had one of those receptions that everybody talks about, do you know how much money they spent on flowers? You know, like, oh my gosh, they had filet and lobster at the reception, right? And there were a lot of people there that were like, "This, this just isn't right. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's dealing with What are we, as good people, who are saying chastity and purity are a good thing and should be rewarded, what are we supposed to do about situations like that? Because that's a mockery of all the other girls that did it right, right? It is. What are we supposed to do about that? That's the question Jesus actually teaches this parable for, is to address that question. What are religious people to make of people like that getting things like that when everyone knows they shouldn't get it? That's why I read verses 1 and 2, because the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees were saying, why are people like that with someone like him? If he knew, who, it, it constantly throughout the Gospels, they're basically thinking, if he knew who they were, he'd react totally differently. And what you've got to see is this, even though you've heard this parable before. Jesus is turning the world upside down with this parable. And he's actually going to be turning the world upside down all through Acts. And I'm not saying that in a cool way to be like an over-the-top preacher. No, he really is turning the order in which you think the world works upside down. The way Tim Keller says it is he says this. What Jesus is saying is that every thought that every human has ever had throughout all of human history whether it's with regard to philosophy or religion, every thought that every human's had about how you connect to God has been wrong. That's Jesus' main point in this parable. Humans have never thought rightly about how to connect with God, ever. And what he does is he's basically making two points. He's saying, y'all don't understand what sin is, and y'all don't understand what salvation is. And what he's telling us is we don't understand what sin is, and we don't understand what salvation is. And those are the two points in your handout. We don't understand what sin is and we don't understand what salvation is. We don't understand why we're not connected with God. And we actually don't understand how to get connected with God. And what Jesus demonstrates in this parable through the people through the two sons are the two different ways you're alienated from God. And the, he begins, obviously, with the younger son. And the Pharisees are picking up on the clues pretty quickly here when he begins to tell the story of the younger son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his life between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, squandered his property and reckless living. Who's the younger son? He's the prostitutes and the tax collectors that Jesus is hanging out with. Right? Right? We're picking up on the details here. We're picking up on who's represented in these characters. Now, what is it that the younger son does? Here's the younger son's sin. It's, Father, I don't want you. I want your stuff. I don't want you. I want your stuff. You're only as valuable to me valuable to me, as much as I can get things from you. And actually, what I realized is I can just ask you for it and be done with you. I want your stuff. Give it to me. And that's why it says, and you kind of have to understand, too, this is an agrarian culture. Your real estate, your farm, your estate is your life. And that's why it says, Father, give me my share of property that's coming to me. And the Father divided his life between them. Your identity is wrapped up into what you've made of yourself in terms of property ownership and things like that. And the Father's, the father's cutting his estate. And what you also have to understand here, too, is that the, in verse 13... Not many days later is actually a very important detail because when you cut up real estate and then you sell it quickly, you sell it cheap. Right? He doesn't care what he gets for it. He just wants to get cash so he can get on with his life. So he'll just take the first offer. He wanted to get out there soon. The not many days later is crucial. This is what this younger son is. The younger son is, I want things, but don't make me deal with you, father. So let's get the stuff that I want, and then we're done. Right? And in this context, the whole village sees what's going on. It brings great shame upon the father and his family because it's his son making a mockery of everything he stands for as a father, as a patriarch, as a leader, as someone who loves his son. And the son's like, no, 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 I don't give a rip. Give me some stuff, and I'm out of here. The younger son, it's the easy sin to talk about. It's the list we all have, right? The easy bad things everybody has in their own life that they think they need to repent of, and you need to repent of. It's just pure self-oriented self-indulgence. That's all it is. There's no secret behind the younger son. And the Pharisees would have immediately recognized who Jesus was talking about. He's talking about all the other sinners. And the real shock to this story when they're listening to this story, and this is where the Pharisees begin to get stumped, and actually any of the listeners, is that the father obliges his son. It's incomprehensible that a son would make that request. It's impossible in their minds that a father would grant it. Like, what kind of father would do something that stupid? You know, you know what trust funds are? Trust funds are the wealthy parents in our country saying, it's ridiculous to give children tons of money. Because... Idiot children do idiot things when they have tons of money, so we put it in a trust because we don't trust them even when we're dead, right? The whole trust fund is about how the father... Do you understand that the phenomenon of the trust fund exists? Is our culture recognizing that the father in this parable is an idiot? I mean, like, were you all tracking with me? Was that too much? Like, I was an econ major, so for me it's all connecting really quick. But, um <laughs> Okay, reality television. What is reality television? Give idiot people tons of resources and tons of money and let's watch The Train Wreck, right? And we laugh, and if you're a Christian, you cry a little bit when you watch Jersey Shore. Um, <laughs> what kind of father would do this? Who cries when they watch Jersey Shore? No Christians in the room. All right, I didn't cry either. That um, was a joke. Uh, <laughs> And what happens when you give idiot people tons of resources to do what they want? Exactly what happens with the younger son. He wastes it on reckless living. He crashes and burns. And he ends up hired out to a pig farmer in a foreign country. Jesus is communicating he is hired up to a non-Israelite pig farmer. These are important details because what Jesus is saying is he's socially cut off He's relationally cut off. He's cut off from the village. He's cut off from the father. But actually, he's spiritually cut off too because being hired out to a Gentile and working for his pigs makes you ritually unpure for an Israelite. He's saying in every possible way, he has breached every possible relationship in an irreconcilable way. But then you have verse 17. He comes to himself. And he comes to his senses and he realizes... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll rise, and I'll go to him, and he starts practicing a speech that he's going to deliver to his father. And this is the return. This is the turn of the passage. And some commentators, if you read, they'll say, like, this is the moment of repentance. This is the moment of return where the younger son sees the error of his way, and he decides to come back to his father. Those commentators, I say confidently, are completely wrong. This is not the turn in the passage. Because why is the son going back to the father? Is he going to be forgiven and restored to his father as a child is to his father? No. He's actually saying, I don't have the right to be your son anymore. Can I enter into an employee-employer relationship? And he's going not in order to be reconnected with his father. He's going for food. This is not repentance. This is not a return. This is actually the younger son becoming like the older son. He's avoiding God, and he's actually entering into the sin that the older son enters into. And the purpose is to show the scribes and the Pharisees that the older son is just as lost as the younger son. And here's the shocker. He's lost not because of his bad things. The older son is lost because of his good things. Because of his good things. Not because they're not enough, but precisely because they exist. Sin takes on a second and more subtle kind of uh, insidious form in the older son because this is where Jesus starts to nail his audience right here. This is who he's aiming for, the scribes and the Pharisees. We all get it that younger sons have blown it. But then he says, now let's go look at the older son. The father, we're going to talk about the father's response to the younger son in a minute, but the father's responded and he's welcomed the younger son in. And the older son is out in the fields looking in. Now, this is an important detail. The older son is the male that's being trained to be the leader and the patriarch of the family. What that meant is one of his primary responsibilities is that he always co-hosted with his father. When a father has a party, the oldest son stands beside him and greets the guests, takes care of the guests, looks to the guests. So already, the older son's dropping his responsibility, already... The older son is publicly disassociating himself with the father. The good son has already publicly abandoned his father. And the older son hears from a servant about the commotion, and he tells him your your brother returned, your father's celebrating, and he can't believe it, and he won't be a part of it. And the father comes out to him and entreats him. And hear what the older son has to say. He was angry, and he refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him, and he answered his father, These many years I have, and the Greek word there is, slaved for you. I've never disobeyed anything you've asked me to do. And you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son comes along, this other son of yours who's wasted all your money, you slay the fattened calf. The older son, this is what you've got to see in this passage, and we don't want to believe this. If you begin to enter into this, it should make you really frustrated. The older son did everything right. And he's exactly like the younger son. He's just as lost. He did everything right. Now, how can that be true? It's because everything he did right, he did for himself. And not for the father. He did everything right. Right, not for the father, not in honor of the father, not of respect or love for the father. He did it to get the father's stuff. I'll play by the rules so that I can get things. I'll be good so that I can get things. In some ways, actually, the younger son's smarter than the older son because the younger son's like, Dad, give me my crap. I want to get out of here. And he gives it to him. And the older son's like, Hey, Dad, I'm going to be unhappy for 10 years serving you so I can get myself. If I'm the older brother, I'm really furious because I decided to be unhappy to get my stuff instead of ask for it on the front end and get it freely, right? I mean, that's the position he's in. I worked for this for 10 years. You just gave it to him? And now we're going to slay the fattened calf, right? The problem's not that he didn't do enough good things. And see, that's the problem we all think we have in our lives. We all think, I haven't done enough good things yet. I haven't cleaned it up enough. I haven't gotten it together enough. Yet, I want to be clear, the problem is not that he hasn't done enough. The problem was his goodness. The problem was his goodness. It was his own goodness that kept him from experiencing the Father's joy. Now, how can that be? This is why. Because he never understood who the Father was. He never understood the love of the Father. He never loved the Father. He just did good things to get stuff. And in his estimation, he had done enough good things. And he thought the Father would bless him if he quiet-timed and small-grouped enough. And if he didn't drink in college, right? If you don't drink in college, God's going to give you a beautiful spouse, right? We all know that. I mean, that's somewhere in the Old Testament, right? (laughs) And you see, it's actually precisely the way he thought about his quiet times and his small groups and his not drinking that keeps him from going into the party. Because it keeps him from seeing that the Father's love is free. And Jesus is making a point that should offend every good person. Your goodness doesn't get you in. Your goodness doesn't get you a spouse, and it doesn't get you a GPA or a job. And it doesn't get the Father's smile on you. And your belief that your goodness will get you things is going to be the thing that keeps you out if you believe in a Christianity where your goodness gets you things from God, then you believe in a Christianity where boasting is totally legitimate because you did it and other people didn't, and you got stuff because you did it right, right? If you believe in a Christianity where goodness gets you things and badness disqualifies you from things, then you believe in a Christianity in which there's deep cause for fear and insecurity because even though you're on the uptick right now, and you've done a lot of good things, you could blow it tomorrow. So live in fear and insecurity if you believe your goodness gets you things and your badness disqualifies you for things, then you believe in a Christianity that's hopeless for some people because they've dug in a hole that's too deep. Because you believe in a Christianity in which God doesn't save, you save. And you see, this is in all of us. And if you're wondering if it's in you, this is how you begin to see that older brother mentality in our hearts. We see it in the way we think about other people. That's how the older brother gets revealed, is by refusing to be a part of the Father's Party, because idiots are in there, and people who've done horrible things are in there, and people who voted Democrat, right, are in there. Our older brother heart is revealed, and uh, Democrats don't think that, that's a joke, kind of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your older brother heart's revealed in the way you think about idiots, have made stupid decisions, right, in the way you think about Greeks or the way Greeks think about independence, right, and it is in the way Democrats think about Republicans and Republicans think about Democrats, okay, every person that has a show on Fox News is an older brother, like, I'm safe with that, like, I'm willing to say that publicly, okay, not saying Fox News is bad, Rachel Maddow is an older brother too, okay, Keith Olbermann's an older brother too, all right, we'll go the other way, everybody thinks everybody else is the problem. Right? Good students, bad students. I'm disciplined and they're not. I make better social choices and they don't. The way we could, it wouldn't take long for all of us to sit around and we can all think of times today we despised and disdained other people because of their choices and their choices were ridiculous and ours were better. Right? We all verbalize that today. All of us, me included. And you see, this parable is actually aimed at the good people the good people who can't fathom morally reprehensible people coming to church, seeing in fellowship, and celebrating the Father's love. If we saw them in church, those people, we'd be suspect, wouldn't we? And you see, both brothers represent ways to avoid God, one by self-indulgence and the other by moralistic superiority. And both of them, both of them, are ultimately equally self-oriented because both of them relate to the Father only in so much as they can get stuff from him. And the shock to the audience was that it wasn't just the younger son that's lost. The older son is lost too. And he was lost not because of his bad things, but because of his good things. Sin is not what we think it is. And so the solution to its salvation is not what we think it is. Salvation is not doing right things, and salvation is not doing good, and and salvation is actually, in a sense, not getting good things. Salvation is being restored to your Father. What it isn't, we, we spoke about this briefly, is verse 17. What it isn't is the younger son saying, I've seen the error of my ways and I'm going to go back to my father and enter into a relationship with him where I don't have as much favor as I can expect as the son because I've blown it there, but I'll try to do some good things and he'll genuinely genuinely kind of be nice to me for the most part. That's not what salvation is. And the reason we know is also because of the first two parables that came before this that were told in succession. Because in the first two parables, here's what happens. Here's the brief rundown. The first one, a man has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He goes and searches for them, and he finds them. And then he celebrates that he found a sheep, just this one sheep. And this is what Jesus says. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Next parable, a woman lose, has ten coins. She loses one. She looks all over the house for it. She finally finds it. She's excited about it. She tells her friends, I found my money. Jesus says, just so I tell you, There's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Salvation does not begin with your plan to get religious. Do you see how God's actually describing repentance as being found? Salvation doesn't begin with your plan to get religious. Salvation begins with being found. And see, when when the younger son returns... The father sees him far off and he has compassion on him and he runs to him and he kisses him. Before the son can even get out his little talk about contrition, his little repentant prayer, the kiss precedes the prayer. The kiss precedes the repentance. The kiss precedes the son making any effort to be restored to his father. God comes to him. The father comes to him. And notice what happens to the older son too. Father comes out to him. The Father goes looking for him. The woman went looking for the coin, The shepherd went looking for the sheep, and Jesus says, "That's what repentance is." He initiates, He pursues. Jesus came down in this world, and he comes to us now through His word. and not because of any merit or any plan or any willpower to turn yourself around, but simply because he chooses to have compassion. And do you see that when your salvation is based on His character and His pursuit and His plan and His joy and His kiss and not yours, then all of a sudden your salvation is sweeter and more secure because it's just based on Him loving you. Salvation is being found. Salvation is being covered. What does the father do with the younger son? He starts, the younger son starts his lame speech that we've all prayed before. I'm going to turn it around and let's just be on good terms now, God, and all that kind of stuff. Do you notice the father cuts off the speech and he's not even listening? He gets halfway through his speech and the father's not even paying attention. The father said to his servants, he's not even listening to the son. The father immediately just says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and put shoes on his feet. Bring quickly the best robe. What Jesus is alluding to right here is Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He shall exult in my God. I, I sh- my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he's covered me with a robe of righteousness. The Father's putting his clothes on the Son to make him acceptable for the party. That's what makes him acceptable for the party. Not the Son's plan to return, it's the Father's robe. He clothes them with his best. And then he puts a ring on his finger. And this is significant because the ring, when he's referring to that, is the signet ring of the household. And what that signet ring functions as is essentially a debit card that gives him access to all of the resources in the household. Because what the ring says is, see this ring? That means I have access to everything in the house that this signet represents. The father is saying, all that I have is yours. He's restored trust to him. He's restored trust to him when the best the son's brought so far is a lame act of not real repentance. And he says, I'm giving you my best robe and I'm giving you my household. And he puts sandals on his feet. And the household at that time, the servants went barefoot and the members of the household, the sons and the daughters, wore sandals. He's saying, this isn't an employer employee relationship. This is not a slave-mass relationship. I'm not doing what you thought I was doing. You're my son again. And you're welcome here. And we're restored. Salvation is being found. It's being covered by the Father. And then it's being celebrated. He kills the fattened calf. Meat in this time, you didn't have it every meal. It was expensive. It was costly. Again, look at the older son. I've labored for years and I'll take a goat for years of labor. So a fattened calf, we can safely say, is significantly more than what several years of labor would have warranted. This is the Father's biggest party. The entire village is in attendance when you're killing an animal this big. This was a delicacy. This was the big wedding in the community where everyone whispers about how much it costs because this is the most expensive one that's happened. This is the Father saying, I'm bringing out my best for you for this reason, to celebrate you. Salvation is God celebrating you. God dancing over you. Zephaniah, in Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with this love, and he will dance over you with loud singing. Do you see that the earlier parables go hand in hand? The purpose of the parables is actually to show how much celebration God has over you. Over you. He... The Creator King celebrates you. We're sitting here trying to worship and not doing a really good job, trying to feel it and getting confused by all the words in the RUF song because there's so many syllables in them and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> We're, we suck at worship. We suck at celebrating Him, even in our best. He loves it and He celebrates you. Because even your lame attempts at worship, they don't sway Him. He celebrates you. Salvation is it's getting found, it's getting covered, It's being celebrated. And it's being restored. Because salvation—it's not a religious transaction. It's not an internal or an external incantation, where you get your—you're not going to get screwed when you die hard from God. That's not what it is. God is not giving you the new heavens and the new earth. God is giving you Himself, and the new heavens and the new earth are just the accommodations. We're getting resurrection bodies, which will be awesome. We'll all be faster than Michael Vick. Girls, y'all look like who y'all want to look like and all that kind of stuff. Guys, all look like Brad Pitt, but be run like Michael Vick and all that kind of stuff. It'll be awesome. There'll be a lot of perks in the new heavens and the new earth. The best part will be God the Father and being with him. Because what happens is salvation is not just getting your get-out-of-hell-free card. It's getting the Father. And it's actually what we all long for in all of our relationships that feel like we get sometimes, but it's always fleeting. It's just wholeness, and it's acceptance, and it's a father that looks at you and holds you and says, well done, and says, I've always loved you. A father to cover you and to say that all that I have is yours. And a father that celebrates you. It's not a system. Christianity is not a system. It's a restoration, and it's a person Jesus is turning the world upside down because the world says this is what your GPA is going to say for the next four years. It has for last year's. You're valued according to what you do. Y'all are getting evaluated. I'm getting evaluated all the time according to what you do. This is the primary mindset of how humans are evaluated in this world. It's according to what you do. You're evaluated according to your performance. Are you conservative enough, liberal enough, moral enough, hardworking enough, chaste enough, disciplined enough, pure enough, free enough? Have you volunteered enough? The world and our flesh is constantly saying what makes or breaks you as a person is your performance in your professional, in your academic, in your spiritual, in your relational, and in your moral sphere. Right? Jesus is saying, you're valued just because I chose to value you. Here's a question. What's the delight of your salvation? Is it the stuff you get out of it or is it the father you get restored to? Is He the prize of your salvation or is it the things that you should expect to get? Right? Because there's a good chance, because our Father is so loving, that if we begin to mistake the gifts for the gift giver and begin, begin to get consumed by and oriented towards and fall in love with the gifts, and they cloud our vision of the gift giver, of the Father who loves us and has given us so much, out of His love, He'll take those gifts away because He wants you to see Him. and He wants you to see His smile. He wants, you to see you, he wants you to hear about his celebration for you. You know what this does for us? If you're hearing this, this lets your shoulders rest. Your shoulders drop a little bit when you hear this message. Because if you're wondering when and how he comes for you, he came in his son Jesus, and he comes now when his words preach to you which means that now his arms are held open. And he's calling you to rest in them. And the first act of rest is song. I'm glad you all at RUF, and I want to tell you what is not going to do for you. We're not in the business of helping you live a moral life in college. The goal is to get you to know and experience and rest and rejoice in and return and reflect the love of Jesus. We're not trying to make a bunch of moral Christian bubble inhabitants. If we're doing that, we're failing, we're shutting the ministry down. We're trying to get you to see that the Father invites you back into a restored relationship, and not because of anything in you. He runs to you. He cuts off your sad speech of bad repentance, and He clothes you, and He gives you His stuff, and He gives you Himself he celebrates you. And the reason why is because he wanted to. When the real gospel's proclaimed, when the Father's free and inviting and celebratory love is offered, then that's going to make the older brother and us nervous. Right? because what about the bad people who've done a lot of worse things than I've done because I've kind of held it together for a couple of years, they need to know that, yes, grace is free, but God wasn't entirely happy with who they are. He's not entirely happy about the way things went. You haven't heard the parable. The whole purpose of the parable is how entirely happy he is. Happy far actually understates what the father feels toward his children. The conclusion of the parable is not so here are the three things you have to do. The conclusion to the parable is, consider this, how great the Father's joy is over his children when he pursues them and brings them back. When the real gospel is proclaimed, older brothers are going to wonder, but you have to tell us to do things, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, grace, 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 salvation, Jesus died on the cross, yada, yada. But you have to tell people to do stuff, right? Do we believe in obedience and are yes. You, have, you need to obey the law of God. You have to obey the law of God. Absolutely. But obedience to God's law is a delight to a restored son. It is a burden to a slaving son who thinks, I just got to make him happy so I can get what I want. The older brother says, you've got to give us a program. You've got to lace it with some threats and some fear. So that people do right things. If you don't tell people to do right things, they won't do it, right? Because the older brother, this is why the older brother struggles with that. The older brother and all of us struggles with that because we don't believe that it's possible to be so loved that our love will draw us to worship one God. That he will love us so dearly that out of love we won't create any other idols. That he'll love us so dearly that out of love we won't mock his name anymore. And out of love we'll rest in him. And out of love we'll honor the parents he's set over us. Out of love we won't lie. Out of love we'll avoid sexual adultery. Out of love we won't cheat. Out of love we won't harm others. Out of love we won't hate. The older brother don't think's lo- doesn't think that love is enough to get us to obey. So we've got to throw some guilt and some fear and some threats in too. And what we're going to do in our UF is present to you a God that's full of grace and a God whose love draws you to his law, even. The reason I don't have girlfriends is not because I have a technique to keep me from doing things that I would rather be doing with other girls. The reason I don't have another girlfriend is because I love Elizabeth. Do you see it's my love that keeps me faithful in this relationship? It's actually her love for me as well. The reason I do my best to not harm her, to not deceive in our family, to not hurt our children, is not because I have a program to discipline myself to get me to do things that I don't want to do. It's actually because I love them. (laughs) Obedience is my love. And the older brother is saying, I don't believe love can get me to do that. And so the older brother holds off the love and says, I'm going to labor, and hopefully that will get things right between me and God. The older brother says, I'm afraid... That you're saying what the Pharisees are afraid Jesus is saying. Because I'm wondering, what about obedience? And here's... Man, when we encounter that older brother in our hearts, we should be sad because we far undersold the fierceness and the the sweetness and the costliness of God's love. That when you get that it cost him everything to restore you, it cost Jesus everything to restore you. And he doesn't begrudge you it. still celebrates that you're restored, then you obey out of love. William Cooper, an old hymn writer, wrote a hymn called Love, Constraining, Obedience. And the verses are these verses where he just says, I've labored in the law and I've tried to do it right and I'm finding no success. And this is the chorus throughout the song. But when I see the law by Christ fulfilled and I hear his pardoning voice, then all of a sudden, my mentality and approach to the law it changes me from a slave into a child, and it changes what was a burdened duty, a burdensome duty, into a choice I freely choose. To the younger sons, you are invited to the party. It is for you. It is for you. You can't go so far as to be beyond the reach of God's grace. To the older sons, stop believing God can't love you into obedience. Put down your good works. And come and celebrate the fact that your good is not good enough and you're still invited. Because he comes to you and because he covers you and all he has is for you as well. Let's pray.